In an interview with Diane Sawyer back in 2002, Whitney Houston discussed the pain and frustration that she experienced after a failed comeback attempt. At one point in the interview, she turned to Ms. Sawyer and said, have you ever heard the sound of 10,000 people disappointed in you? Ten years later, Ms. Houston accidentally drowned in a bathtub after becoming unconscious due to a combination of heart disease, cocaine use, and a cocktail of other over-the-counter and prescription drugs. She battled sadness and depression for years because she felt like she could never succeed in earning back the love and admiration of those who had once considered her to be a superstar. So many people deal with the same circumstances, feeling like no one loves them and that no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, they can never possibly earn love. But the shocking truth that so many people miss is the fact that God's love is unconditional. Last week we talked about God's love story, how God created humankind to be in perfect relationship with him, but how the relationship became broken by the choices that humans made. Choices to take actions that were not loving towards God and not loving towards other people. And in order to return us to relationship with him, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to teach us how to live and to eventually sacrifice himself in order to win our victory over sin and death. But even after his torturous execution, death and sin could not hold Jesus Christ. And he rose from the dead once and for all, giving humanity the victory over sin and death and giving humanity the opportunity to have their relationship with God restored. The overwhelming theme of God's love story is that God loves humankind so much that even in our fallen state, he was willing to sacrifice his own son to save us. Today, the question that we're faced with is, what truths can we take from God's love story that are equally true today as they were when God first enacted this love story all those years ago? Are there truths from God's love story that are just as applicable to us today as they were back then? And are there truths that should be central to following Christ that sometimes get stuck on the back burner by virtue of trying to merge Christianity with American culture? I'd like to tell you a story told by the late Brandon Manning, a favorite author of mine, who wrote the best-selling book, Ragamuffin Gospel. Manning says, On a blustery October night in a church outside Minneapolis, several hundred believers had gathered for a three-day seminar. I began with a one-hour presentation on the gospel of grace and the reality of salvation. Using scripture, story, symbolism, and personal experience, I focused on the total sufficiency of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The service ended with a song and a prayer, and then as they were leaving the church by a side door, the pastor turned to his associate and fumed, Geez, that airhead didn't say one thing about what we need to do to earn our salvation. Friends, something is radically wrong. See, salvation is a free gift through the grace of Jesus Christ. And yet, somehow the church has communicated to so many people that we need to do things in order to earn our salvation, that we need to do things in order to earn God's love. And that's easy for us to believe because we're used to having to earn things, right? After all, we live in a society in which we're suspicious of things that are supposedly free. And we're often disdainful of people who receive things for free. 
We live in what's known as a meritocracy in which we're supposed to earn everything that we get. If we're offered something which we didn't work for, we better take a good look at it. I remember when I was young, my dad taught me the old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so we live our lives this way. Many of us come to believe that we're only as good as other people think we are. We want everyone to look at us and say, man, that guy or that gal's got it going on. We're constantly measuring ourselves by numbers in various categories. Our grades, our salary, our waistline, our Facebook friends, the number of amens that people shout while we're preaching. I hope you said amen at home. We end up basing all of our relationships on the need to perform and obtain affirmation from others. And when we don't obtain that affirmation from people, we wonder what the heck is wrong with us. We live in fear that we are doing enough, being enough, accomplishing enough, improving enough, and eventually this can't help but boil over into our relationship with God. This is compounded by the fact that sometimes our churches seem to believe what the pastor and Brennan Manning's story believe, that we have to actively do something in order to earn God's love. In response to this, Manning argued that not only do we need to do anything to earn God's love, we in fact can't do anything to earn God's love. Manning describes all of us who know that we're in need of God's love and mercy as ragamuffins. A ragamuffin's a person who is dressed in ragged clothes, often viewed as disreputable, and the term usually refers to a dirty or poorly clothed child. In spiritual terms, a ragamuffin is someone who knows and understands that he or she is nothing but a beggar at the door of God's love. But here's the great thing. Jesus loves ragamuffins. See, Jesus was known for hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, people who the perfect people, the religious elite, completely rejected. So when Jesus is hanging out and eating with these people, the religious people go to Jesus' disciples and they say, why does your master eat with these people? See, in that culture, eating with someone was a sign of goodwill and, and friendship. It wasn't just a, a formal thing that happened. Jesus wasn't having a business lunch with these people. He was having a backyard barbecue. He was enjoying spending time with these folks. And the religious teachers want the disciples to explain to them why in the world Jesus would be spending his time with these people. And Jesus overhears this, and he answers with what I think is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick who need medical attention. See, if you're sick but you're not willing to admit that you're sick and go to the doctor... The doctor can't help you. In our spiritual lives, if we want to pretend that we're healthy all on our own, then we can't get the help that we need for our souls. This message this morning isn't for people who want to pretend that they're healthy, who want to live as though they're perfect and expect everyone else to put on the same performance. This is for the bedraggled, the beat up, the burnt out. This is for the sorely burdened who are shifting the heavy suitcase of life from one hand to the other. This is for inconsistent, unsteady disciples. This is for poor, weak, 
sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives must be a grave disappointment to God. It's for smart people who know that they're stupid. For honest disciples who admit that they're not so honest. When we fail to embrace the fact that we're ragamuffins who are loved by Christ, we end up believing that we have to do great deeds in order to earn God's love. Now, if you were raised in the church, you were probably taught this idea of salvation by faith. We know that we're saved by our belief in Jesus Christ, and I think we believe that on an intellectual level. But in many cases, the lives that we live don't bear out that we believe this. We accept God's grace in theory, but we deny it in practice. Because we've been taught our entire lives that we must earn the things we receive. It's almost as if we view God as a bookkeeper who, every time we make a mistake, makes a black mark on our record and says, that one's going to cost you. Every time we do something we consider to be good, we, accept, we expect God to make good things happen for us. In short, we've substituted a belief in karma for the faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a slave mentality that we have to perform in order to gain the approval of our master. Jesus tells a story with which you may be familiar, the story of the prodigal son. And uh, in brief, this story is about a son who demands his inheritance from his father, which is pretty much like saying, Hey, Dad, wish you were dead. The father gives the son the money anyway, and the son moves away, and he blows all of his money partly. Then he realizes one day that he has no money left, he's got nothing to eat, and he's dressed all in rags. In short, he's become a ragamuffin. He's so hungry that he takes a job feeding pigs, and he finds himself so hungry that he wants to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And that's something that would have been utterly offensive to the first century Jews who were listening to this story. This is a dude who has hit absolute rock bottom. So he decides that the best thing to do is to go home and not ask his father to take him back as a son, but to offer to work for him as a slave. So he starts walking home, and while he's still a long way off, the father, who has obviously been watching for his son day after day since he left, the father sees him while he's still a long way off, and he runs to him and grabs him and begins hugging him and kissing him. And the father puts a robe over the son's rags and puts sandals on his dirty feet and a ring on his skinny, malnourished finger. Even in his rebellion, the son was still the beloved of the father. The son didn't need to perform any actions to earn his father's love. He was the beloved simply because he was the son. God's love story reminds us in no uncertain terms that we don't need to scramble around in our filthy rags trying to earn brownie points with God. We don't need to fear rejection or try to negotiate our way back into God's love because God has never stopped loving us. Now some of you might be saying, wait a minute there, Alex. Sounds like you're telling us here that sin is no big deal. Sounds like you're saying that since Jesus sacrificed himself, we're free to do all the sinning we want as long as we ask for forgiveness for it later. Let me make very clear that's not what I'm saying. 
See, those saved by the grace of Christ can never repay him for what he's done. But they live every moment trying to follow the commands of Christ, not because they'll get thumped if they screw up, but because they've accepted the unconditional love of Christ. And that gives them the ability to follow. Richard Rohr, an author and Franciscan friar, said, Most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we change. In fact, God loves you so that you can change. What empowers change, what makes you desirous of change, is the experience of love. It is that inherent experience of love that becomes the engine of change. See, friends, God's love gives us the ability to change. And he doesn't stop loving us if we fail to change. He doesn't stop loving us when we fail to be perfect. But this isn't the understanding that the fearful legalist has of God. You know, the person who believes that God only loves them and only loves others if they do the right good works. The God of the legalist must be appeased by the magic of their righteous deeds. And when broken people with this view of God fail, as they inevitably will, they expect punishment. So they persevere in their religious practices, hallowed they may be. And they struggle to maintain this image of the perfect self. And the struggle is exhausting. One who believes the false idea of needing to earn God's love can never measure up to the expectations that they project onto God. Some people feel like they have to pretend that they're perfect, that they're better than others, because they hold the twisted belief that this is the only way that God will love them. And that belief is just plain wrong. As the scripture passage this morning said, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If we're fearful that we've not earned God's love, then we don't understand God's love story. We do not need to try to earn God's love. Christ's work on the cross was totally sufficient to save us from sin. Even though we're nothing but a bunch of ragamuffins clothed in filthy rags, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Who you are truly has nothing to do with your accomplishments or your potential or your strengths or your weaknesses or your past or your present or your future. Your identity is firmly anchored now and forever in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Because Jesus was strong for me, I'm free to be weak. Because Jesus was a someone, I'm free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I'm free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I'm free to fail. And while we never stop trying to follow the commands of Jesus, we do it with the understanding that we're only able to obey because of God's love. Our love for him as well. I don't need to be afraid that I'm not good enough. Because Jesus Christ, in his grace, and his perfect love, has made me good enough. Perfect love casts out all fear. This, then, is the eternal truth of God's love story. Don't be afraid that you're not good enough for God. 
Don't be afraid if others act holier than thou, look down their noses at you, or tell you that you're not good enough. As we prepare to celebrate communion in a few moments, I ask you to remember that we don't do this to celebrate something that just took place in the distant past, but to remember an ever-present and eternal truth. That God loves you completely and totally and unconditionally. Communion doesn't just commemorate something that happened on a Jerusalem hillside 2,000 years ago. It's a proclamation that the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ still prevail in our brokenness today. God declares to you today, I love you. I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. There's nothing that you can do today to make God love you anymore. There's nothing that you can do today to make God love you any less. He loves you because 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 that's who he is and that's what he's like. If you make absolutely no changes to your life, God will still love you 100%. If you make changes to improve your life, God will still love you 100%. You will always be his beloved. His love is just as real and just as unconditional as it was when he decided to send his son on our behalf all those years ago. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. God's love will fight fear in you. His love has come to drive out fear. His love has come to set you free from rejection, to set you free from shame, to set you free from low self-esteem, to set you free from despair. Let it. Let God's love do that in you today. I want to leave you with this story. There was a great Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. In fact, he's regarded by many as the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He's considered the founder of what's known as the Neo-Orthodoxy movement. Neo meaning new and orthodox meaning correct belief. So it was a movement aimed at returning to the correct belief and understanding of scripture. He wrote many influential books that are still used by pastors and seminarians today, including a 14-volume, 9,200-page magnum opus called Church Dogmatics. It's available online for about $150 for those of you who want to click over and order it so you can start reading it right away. But when this brilliant academic mind was nearing the end of his life, somebody asked him, what's the most profound theological truth that you've encountered in your work? His answer was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the eternal truth of God's love story. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the time we've had this morning. And we thank you for the truth that you love us unconditionally. That we don't need to try and earn your love, nor do we need to fear not measuring up. Holy Spirit, please be present to remind us of this truth when we get beaten up and broken down by the world. I pray your blessing upon each individual watching and listening today. May these truths find a home in their hearts. I pray that each person would know and experience your unconditional love 
and know that no matter what they've done or had done to them, that they are precious to you. Please help the church to do a better job of showing this unconditional love as well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who's alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God, both now and forever. Amen.